This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am, among other things, the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my esteemed producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Tonight's show is not so much about news and newsmakers in our own country. Uh, you might recall last week we did the Media and the Leadership Challenge in Canberra with journos from the New York Times, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Financial Times, and the head of UTS Journalism, Monica Attard. That's out on podcast, and all I can say is go listen. This week we're going to take a look at the state of investigative journalism in the United States, a little bit here and elsewhere innovation in journalism, and one of our favorite subjects, Donald Trump and the news media. And on the Trump front, we might be in danger of running out of shock and all, but we are certainly not short of material. Veteran uh, investigative journalist Bob Woodward, he of Watergate fame, has penned a book about Trump's White House in which senior administration officials call the president, among other things, a liar, an idiot, uh, they say that Trump is so ill-suited to the job that officials are hiding key documents from him or declining to act on his impulsive suggestions, such as killing Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, or as the book says, Trump uh, telling uh, the uh, General Mathis, let's fucking kill him, let's kill the fucking lot of them. To help us understand all this and much, much more, I am joined by one very big name in the world of investigative journalism, Robert Rosenthal from the Center for Investigative Reporting in the United States. Robert's long and distinguished career includes being a correspondent in Africa, reporting from Lebanon and Israel, a slew of award-winning investigations, and for his sins, time as the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer and managing editor of the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. There is much, much more, but Robert Rosenthal, welcome to the Fourth Estate. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. Let's start with your president and the Woodward book. Uh, which the whole show isn't about that, but I think we have to start with that. So Trump has called it a con, and a few key, uh, people quoted in the book, such as Defense Secretary Jim Mathis and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, uh, claim that they have been grossly misquoted. Um, so I guess the question uh, also comes to mind is, will the book have an impact? And if so, why? I'm not sure it will have an impact immediately. The, there was also today, as you know, uh, an anonymous... Ooh editorial op-ed in the New York Times by what's described as a senior White House official, uh, which mirrored much of the comments, uh, but basically said, you know, we're aware of what's going on and we're going to protect the United States and we realize it. Uh, I think the book will just be more 
a lot of confusion. I think in the United States right now, there's a huge political divide and it's dangerous. And if you're one of Donald Trump's base, uh, it'll this, this book and this op-ed are another uh, example of the deep state and the conspiracy against Donald Trump. If you can't stand Donald Trump, uh, it's more of the same. It's not going to change your mind. I think that the question is the big middle, where are they going to go? And we have a midterm election in two months, which, as you know, will really, I think, push the direction of the United States one way or the other. If the Republicans control the House and the Senate, who the hell knows what will happen if if the Democrats take the House or the Senate. Uh, it could lead to even more chaos, uh, but it really boxing Donald Trump in and could lead to impeachment politically. Mm. So I think that, but I do think the momentum now in the United States, uh, it, you know, the there's huge energy for Donald Trump, but there's bigger energy. He's activated a lot of people uh, politically, uh, and I think that's really where the midterm elections are going. Yeah, well, we're all very much glued to U.S. politics. We're very much glued to the midterms. Uh, yes, it's true. It's interesting. I mean, I guess the other thing is, from where we sit, a lot of us are kind of a bit scared that there's someone who's so seemingly ill-suited to this job in the White House. How does it feel in the U.S.? Uh, embarrassing, uh, dangerous, uh, humiliating, and it also, you know, we, we're always all, and the fixation and his ability to get inside everybody's head literally every two minutes or 30 seconds, depending yeah. on the tweet barrage and the response in the news. But uh, it also says a lot about the United States. Uh, I think, you know, this is he was elected uh, the way our system works. You know, we don't have to get in the Electoral College. Yeah. Hillary Clinton did get more votes. But what does this say about America and the forces and the feelings that have been unleashed in terms of racism and, and divided politics? Uh, it's a very dangerous moment. And yeah. it's... Uh, and it's people are really concerned, and it's it's amazing how disruptive it is. And I'm was around uh, during Watergate, and grew up in the '60s when we had you know Jack Kennedy assassinated in '63. And if you think of that period, we had our civil rights movement, which was incredibly dangerous, violent, ugly. This Vietnam War happening at the same time. Mm. And then five years later, you know, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, Megar Evers, other people assassinated, and the nation it was teetering. And which is led, it akin to that sort of? It's. A, I think it's just as. I think the difference now is yes. I think it was actually more disruptive then, and if you, and violent. We haven't had the violence yet, mm. but the big difference now is the internet and the ability of Donald Trump to be the biggest and most influential and disruptive publisher in the world simply by tweeting. So the constant barrage mm. of information is really disruptive. Well, and, yeah, and, and and that goes to what the show is really about: is that in a sense, um, on one level, Trump seems to be playing the the news media at its own game insofar as it, as you say, a constant barrage of outrage which is very hard not to report, right? Yeah. I mean, he's the president of the United States. And, you know, he had a Twitter feed that was quite active before he went into politics. And you remember the birther movement. And he created a following around that. But it is, uh, you know, it's instantaneously and it's obviously unprecedented. But again, if you look at the authoritarian and the model of authoritarians forever, they've always controlled the information in whatever technology existed, whether it was pamphlets or town crier or mm. the radio in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, and now we have social media. So the control of information and 
from what we're talking about tonight, journalism also, uh, we're the whipping boys. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think this Trump, you know, the rhetoric, the fake news rhetoric, the enemy of the people rhetoric, is that working or is that just working to the base? Playing I think base? it works to the base. Uh, and I think it also sets up uh, when, if whatever negative information comes out, that the base won't, you know, it's not true, it's not true, it's not mm. true, they're liars, they're liars, they're liars, mm. uh, which is a, a tactic or a strategy also in terms of the vast conspiracy, uh, you know, the dark state, the, whatever you want to call it, and the, and the Democrats and the Mueller probe. So it's it's done with not only uh, maybe belief on his part, but also to undermine the credibility of any critical reporting, and that's really fake news is really critical reporting in his eyes. And and just just sticking with this because it, I've been reading quite a lot about uh, you know Carl Pope, for instance, at Columbia Journalism Review, uh, and the and the Reuters people actually out of Oxford, they made they both made these sorts of points that faced with this barrage of Trump. The, the sort of the journo uh, has got two problems. One is that there's so much of it. So the the normal chance to look at, you know, to hold account, to investigate, all those things are kind of, you know, everything's sped up. So there's a lot that might be slipping by here. And the second point is faced with this, you know, being called the enemy of the people, journalists have a choice or possibly have a choice whether they pull their punches or end up looking like they're partisan which is possibly, uh, you know, a bad look for journalism. Well, it's yeah, only, it certainly goes away from objectivity. Anyway, put yes, and, and also we have business mm. models, I think similar to what you have here in Australia, mm. where you have news, major news organizations, Fox, MSNBC on the left, Fox on the right, others, mm-hmm. uh, who clearly are catering to a political point of view that supports their business model and their audience. So the audiences, as you know, are going to what they want to hear rather than different points of view, which also leads, in another important thing, to things that are completely ignored or not covered, by depending on your political point of view. Yeah. But the disruption, you know, is real. And the question of what journalists do, I think you're seeing headlines in the New York Times, for example, that say, this is a lie, or here's what he said, and here's the facts. Mm. So it's, it is, it's a really interesting dilemma when you're it's the president, and he says this. Does the next sentence say this is not true? Mm. Uh, well, you're seeing that happen right now. Yeah, but and, you wouldn't normally do that. Well, normally the president doesn't bald-faced lie, lie uh, or not tell the truth. And I, I think in the past you you have skepticism or you have investigative reporting that does it. But now it's it's constant. Mm. And so we're in we are in somewhat uncharted territory here. Yeah, I think so. Well. Think about it today in, in, in Washington in the last 48 hours, you had Woodward's book, you know, leaks around it coming out. Mm. And then within 24 hours, you have an, someone who's said to be a, a high-level White House official basically saying, uh, there's been, uh, don't worry, we understand what's going on. Mm. There's, he is a liar. He just doesn't tell the truth, but there's a quiet sort of coup d'etat going on that we're going to take care of you. Mm. And if And if that was done... It's totally ex- – the Times obviously – I think someone wrote it. Uh, Times obviously knows who it is. Yeah. Can you imagine being in the Trump White oh, House? Going nuts. And, right. I mean, this is like you want it's, to – it's better than fiction. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, talk about, you know, the court of the Medicis or whoever. Yeah. What do you, just just finishing on Trump for the set, for the time being, I was in China about six months ago, and the Chinese, uh, a lot of people in China said to me, and obviously a few people, it's it's not you know the whole China, it's not China's view, but a few people in China said to me basically, uh, Trump is a genius, 
because he can't be this nuts. You well, know, this, this kind of this contrary. I think he's a brilliant uh, at his own marketing and ability to understand what motivates, enthralls, activates his the base, and, mm. you know, whatever you want to call the base, the people who support him. And it's clear that in the United States right now, it's not only a political divide, it's really, really complicated and hard to talk to people who don't agree with you politically. Mm -hmm. And there's also a racial divide. And what he's also activated, you know, we talked earlier about the midterms, Mm. or a lot of people, I think right now there are more women, for example, candidates for the congressional offices than ever before. Many of the, of some on the Republican side, but many are Democrats. And many of these women actually are graduates of the U.S. military academies who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, yeah. the old order on the left, if you want to call it the left, is really being disrupted. Uh, and and I, it's going to be interesting to see what turnout's going to be. Because, again, this isn't a national election. These are, you know, 535 seats in our Congress, which are hyper-local. And it's not about the national candidates. This is about the local mm. candidates. And the U.S. Senate's a little different. There, you know, this there are thirty-three seats up out of a hundred, but there's a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, he's People un- are he's unlikely to win the Senate, right? That seems to be the uh, well. The Democrats. It's only two Sorry, seats. Democrats. I mean, yeah. It's it's two seats. I mean, they're not saying so, but it, it's it's. I think. <laughs> It's this chaotic moment right now, and if you can believe polls, which, you know, take with a ton of salt, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the unfavorable against Trump is going up. The the polls are saying that the, yeah. dem- the Republicans, the Democrats will control the House, maybe the Senate. It's a toss-up. It's going to be, yeah. and there could be unforeseen events. I think when he said yesterday or two days ago, warning Assad about something, I think military action, when U.S. gets into more wars than we're in already... That always leads to things. Uh, it's 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 a totally unpredictable, unforeseen hmm. new moment we're in. Yes. Okay. And Indeed. it affects the whole world. It's it not, does. I mean, we're all, as I say, we're we're glued to our seats as as almost as much as you guys are. I think. And and you know he's getting cornered right now, and hmm. uh, it's dangerous. It's it a, it's a potentially yeah. dangerous moment. It is. It is indeed. Hey, let's talk more broadly about investigative journalism. Which seems slightly happier subject all of a sudden, but anyway, you, you've done an amazing job at expanding the Center for Investigative Reporting. Thank you. Uh, you've done so in both in terms of funding, uh, in reach, in in innovation, in terms of content and content form and channels. Um, including even the use of uh, plays based around investigative journalism and coloring books even. That was a new one to me today when I was listening to you talk. So how did you do that? I mean, what's the the secret here? (laughs) Failure. Uh, Desperation. (laughs) Possibly, right? Uh, Well, uh, for your audience, I mean, in the States, obviously, or maybe not obviously, we have different tax laws so that people can Mm -hmm. give money for nonprofit journalism and uses a tax deduction. So we have a history, not of deep funding in the United States, but of American foundations who would support mm-hmm. investigative reporting. And the Center for Investigative was the first and oldest uh, nonprofit founded and created in 1977, uh, so 41 years ago. Yeah, well. uh, but uh, what really, you know, I was, as you said, or mentioned, and thank you for that wonderful introduction, uh, I was an editor. I did. I started as a copy boy at the New York Times, but I was also the editor of big papers so and, and been a reporter. But my passion for it was really to try and create a new model 
at a time when the American newspaper industry had been sort of eviscerated by the financial collapse and the onset of the Internet. And how did I do it? I think that just was really open, number one, to really important stories that made a difference, number one. And then really embracing, while not being a technologist, the skills of people who were able to create content on platforms that reach people in brand new ways across the Internet, whether it was video or audio or an animation, you name it, mm. and or how data was used or inter interactive data sets, mapping, mm. and understanding that these were new ways of telling stories that, you know, I grew up in a newspaper, which was pretty straightforward yeah. and pretty remarkable every day that it came out when you think about existing technology then. But understanding that there were people with skill sets that I certainly didn't have who could take information and tell stories in new ways. Do you think that uh, the industry, and this again being very broad, but uh, that there was a reluctance in parts of the industry to embrace technologists? Because part of this, what you've talked about, is the need to embrace people who aren't us, who aren't necessarily journalists, who aren't necessarily even storytellers. Yeah, there was a... Com yes, I think that... And here's, for me, the problem, the way I see it, was that in a for-profit model in the corporate news organizations, mm -hmm. the number one priority is profit and yep. making money, which is fine. No one, There's nothing wrong with making money. But it totally oh, was, I hate to say this, trumped the journalism <laughs> needs, uh, you know, of what was going on. So when, when the American newspaper's revenue, and you've seen it here in Australia, began declining and profit margins dropped, the one way to keep a profit margin up, obviously, was to cut costs. So mm. they cut out journalists, they cut out delivery of papers, yep. you name it. And so circulation dropped intentionally. There was less coverage, you know, and if you, I don't know the data points here, but from my own knowledge, you know, a paper I, that I was the editor of, the Philadelphia Inquirer, was a very good newspaper. When I was the editor, I had over 600 people in the newsroom. Today, it's a couple of hundred. Mm. So think about and even your your listeners will understand, and that's comparable to here, it is how many cool. things are not being covered that were? Yeah. How many things don't you know about? And it might be your kid's sports team, but it could be the city council or, mm. you know, the, who's giving out the judiciary, uh, criminal justice, issues that really had oversight. And I don't want to sound too cynical, but it's my experience that corruption is not unique to any one country or culture. No, it's actually unique to human nature. Right. <laughs> right. Tell me about, uh, how do you feel about citizens journalists? Can one of the, if you like, the big narratives, the promises of the web and, and, and the likes of, um, you know, the likes of Jay Rosen and Clay Shirky, those sorts of people in your country was like, right, okay, here come the audience. They're going to be telling the stories. You don't really, you know, they're going to be working with journalists at best. Uh, possibly don't even need journalists at worst. What do you think about I, that? I think of? we need journalists. I think journalists know how to glean facts. And most importantly, the best journalists know how to tell a story. Because, you know, if you have a bunch of data, and uh, who's going to pay attention? But if you can find the characters to tell a story. I think it's really important today to hear and be listening to and have access to on a two-way street mm -hmm. to communities and people to get information and, and even use them potentially as sources of news. But I, I don't think especially for investigative reporting, mm. to have credible investigative reporting that's accurate, you can rely on the citizen, average person because depending on their point of view, who they're trying to take advantage of or screw, who they're mad at, God knows what they'll put out there, and we've seen that happen clearly on social media. Mm. So I do think there's a really important role, but I think that what the technology has opened up is the ability to have communications. There was always, in a sense, citizen journalism, 
because the best reporters, you went out to the community you covered and you talked to people. Yeah, of course. And you came back and reported on it, and they were your sources. And if they trusted you or thought the story you wrote was accurate, mm-hmm. they called you up or sent you a letter or whatever it was sure. in the old days. So that, to me, was also a form of citizen journalism. But I, I think the openness, but to rely on them, no. I mean, is, this journal, is somebody who's at the scene of a car accident and takes the picture that goes viral as a journalist? Is it? I don't know. I don't think. I mean, they were witness. Right. They were witnesses. Took and, a, took a photo. Taking a photo. And, but are they giving it the context? Are they telling a story? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I'm someone who didn't didn't always embrace citizen journalism. I embraced the citizen and the openness of dialogue. But mm-hmm. I do think there are things journalists do that the average person doesn't do and can't do and doesn't understand. Tell me about the center, because one of the. I mean, you have done remarkable things in this time. Uh, and one of them has been this kind of sense of measuring impact. Is that? Tell me how you measure success, because it's well, quite, it's, it's a very you know, you know that, and the reason we do that uh, is because if you're funding CIR, and, and people have asked me this question, if you're a philanthropist or a foundation, and you want, for example, to support building wells in a community that has dirty water, well, you can see it, or put, you know, fund some schools yep. being built somewhere. Uh, but how do you measure, you know, if you're funding journalism, what does that mean? You're not going to see something being built. But what you do can measure or in terms of impact is how, if you're doing a story, an investigative story, does it lead to positive change? Does it lead to legislation changing? Does it mean to a community dialogue around an issue? It's a huge range of things. Does it help someone's life? Does it take get someone out of jail who was in jail or create a positive for someone's life who was in a deeply negative situation? Uh, and I could get into great detail. So it's many things. Do you do a story that becomes curriculum for a university or a high school? Does a story lead people to take action or create solutions? So, I mean, those are all forms of measurement, laws changing, et cetera, exposure of a problem that people didn't know existed. So those are all, you know, in a big market, a laundry basket of impacts. There's so many ways to do it. And one of the things we learned that there were so many unintended consequences as well that we saw as success, but it was creating a culture where those things were captured that was most important. And one of the things you did was create this this impact uh, tracker, tracker, which I, I, I yeah. would look at this afternoon. It's, it's terrific. Yeah, it's a content management system that we share with other news organizations, and it really is also about a culture you create in your news organization where people are sensitive to and aware of a huge range of results from their stories. And... Again, the people who support CIR are not looking for money or some kind of return. They're looking for what we call in the States sort of social justice journalism, Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, public uh, service. And you would have heard this already in your time in Australia, of course. We don't have anything like the level of philanthropy that you do in the States. But then we have much more, impact, uh, much more inputs from the government sector, than, which, of course, is problematic for journalism. Mm-hmm. So... I know, you know, hey, you're the newbie here, but I'm interested in your take on this in terms of how do we get people in the private sector to put their hand in their pocket and support journalism? Well, I think that's tough. And I, I do, th- you know, the tax laws in the states mean that, as, as you said, that somebody who supports us or the foundation, uh, yeah. that's their job. They give away money to individuals. Sure. It's a tax break. Uh, I think it's, you really, it's an education process. And I think, you know, if depending on your point of view politically in the states right now, uh, is the press the enemy of the people or is the press the savior of the republic? Yep. Uh, because for an authoritarian, historically, you know, they take over or c- 
coerce, you know, the judiciary, the legislative, law enforcement, and the press. And yep. in the United States right now, one could argue that the, depending again on your political point of view, the biggest opposition and the thing that may be slowing down Donald Trump more than anything is the press. So when you can articulate that and also explain to people that historically the control of information in any society is one of the most crucial mm-hmm things in terms of the good for of a democracy you explain it that way and i think the other thing that's really important is to talk about the risks that journalists take you know uh we saw this week you know the imprisonment of two journalists in minamar yep Reuters yep. journalists journalists are killed around the world it doesn't happen much in the united states but it's a profession where people really believe they're serving the public and also like the military and law enforcement in different ways are mm-hmm. actually targeted and eliminated or imprisoned because of the job they're doing. So I think those are all part of the message that I try and tell people and why it's worth it. And for many people, that cuts across political lines. Sure, absolutely. I, I, I guess uh, it's an interesting conundrum because I'm not sure if we want to elect a Donald Trump to reinvigorate the news media in this country. I wouldn't, wouldn't advise it. But uh, nonetheless, your point is valid. And I, I think the point you make that uh, to to um, rein, reinvigorate the me- news media, we have to tell the stories that the news, you know, these stories would not exist without journalists, is basically. Yeah, it. and administrations, you know, prior to the internet, always can try try to control the message and yeah. it's just you know the, but the acceleration and the ability through these social feeds and other tools uh really have created a whole nother dynamic and i think you alluded to earlier sort of the i think the rules have changed you know i this is a maybe an analogy that will annoy or make some of your listeners unhappy or they may agree with it i i frequently think about and it's not that extreme in the states but it's getting there or it's dangerous is, you know, if I was a journalist in, uh, let's say, Nazi Germany in the 1930s or 20s, what would you have done? Mm-hmm. And in that case, what the Nazis did is they basically killed or imprisoned people who stood up to them. We're not at that point, but you sort of alluded to that earlier. What, what do we do? And I'm not saying we're there in the States, but when you have a leader uh, who cl- plays loose with the facts and is so volatile and stirring up people, it's really potentially setting the stage for violence. And I think that's really the great danger here. And the U.S. is highly divided right now. And uh, what happens in the next few months is anybody's bet. Absolutely. I'm just going to stick, we're going to come back to that in in a couple of seconds. But I did want, you know, like me, I probably have a lot of, uh, you know, experience under your belt. What do you tell younger journalists when they, what do you say to younger people when they say they want to be a journalist? Well, there's two things. One, if, you know, if we have, I really love working with the younger generation because you know, for me personally, it's like giving, giving back because I had great opportunities when I was in my 20s. Getting into journalism today is completely different than when we started. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot more opportunities because of the nature of distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, even three or four people getting together or a couple of people or one person being able to write a story, tell a story well, you can get distribution. You can yeah. potentially get audience. I'm not sure how you make money, but there are different models now being created. And in the States, you know, there's this very vigorous but small nonprofit sector where there are hundreds of journalists employed who may be new to the game or came out of corporate media. But that's something that is a positive. It doesn't offset the loss of, you know, corporate media. But 
there are new models being created, and I think one of the key things right now is is how you work together with others who have skills, collaboration, both internally and externally, to reach an audience. And I do think the role, and I differentiate between media and journalists, because there is a role for the journalists globally, and I mean, as you do, a lot of people from around the world who are journalists, and it's a Journalists are people who are generally passionate, creative people who really believe in making a difference and trying to serve their society. So I think it's a very important role, and we have to figure out how to keep it going. Absolutely. Uh, And just, yeah, that difference that you make between media and journalists is is actually very a valid one for for everyone, really. You make a difference between, in essence, people commenting, making opinion, the Fox News, MSB, you know, MSB, NBC as well, versus reporters. Is that, that basically where you draw that line? Yeah, I think that the line is blurred. And, and the other thing right now, and there's always been, even in the States, you know, actually when the United States started, the newspapers were basically created by the political leaders and they were yeah. pure propaganda. And we had something called the Alien and Sedition Act to stop that. Uh, and really what it was is that President Adams, you know, didn't like the people who were criticizing him. He tried to put him in jail. Sounds similar. But, uh, yeah, I think the media, to me, has been blurred a lot by opinion, talking heads, and, you know, I'm sure you have it here. I know you have it here in Australia, the same thing, where it's basically point of view, point of view, opinion, 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 and there's speculation, and and it almost doesn't mean anything. It's it's to fill the airtime. And I think for many people in the public... Everything is blurred, mm. and they're hearing people say things, and they take it as fact, and it it really undermines the best journalism because people are just confused. And but I also want to say one thing that you know, and it, I don't want to sound elitist, but there are always people. There's it's always been the case. It's mm. not something sure. new. It's not brand new. No, and no. when I mentioned no. earlier, the extremes are going to believe whatever their point no. of view. They're going to believe it no matter what. They're sure. entrenched. So where? How big is the middle? Yep. You know, and how, and what is that group of people actually going to do? Sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. Always about that. Um, tell me about your views about, uh, you know, the Google, Facebook. We, you know, we're seeing a lot of unprecedented attention to Facebook and Google. They're, they're back in the uh, having Senate hearings again, or Facebook and Twitter, uh, not Google. <laughs> um, uh, you know... The debate in this country is very similar to what's happened in your country, uh, and there's there's a lot of resentment in the news media, the publisher level and journalist level, that they took the money, basically, and then they kind of weaponized crap and fake news mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And yet, at the same time, as you know, we were both in that meeting today. You know, Google's in that meeting. Google spends a lot of money supporting news journalism. Facebook, likewise. Twitter is the amplification arm of not only the present. Lots of good people use uh, Twitter. So where do where do we draw? Where do we? How should we think about those? Well, I, I think you know we're in this moment. If you go back twenty years, none of this existed. Which is you think about this this tiny window of time mm. that this disruption has happened, as well as you know the devices that were all in a sense instant publishers and instant receivers and the distraction. So I think. It would be fun to come back in 50 or 100 years and sort of see how this sorts out. I think, you know, these models, uh, it's not simply Facebook and Google and Twitter that have, you know, eviscerated the the newspaper industry. You know, it was the fixed costs. You know, I'm sort of uh, not sure where it's all going. I do think that those companies need to figure out how to, if they really care about society, to get more money into the, quote, journalism. Mm Mm-hmm. 
They're also, from my own experience in talking to them, they do not understand journalism and they're a little afraid of it, mm-hmm. uh, especially investigative reporting. But I think they're they're trying to really figure this out. And, and Do you think they want to understand journalism? By the way? I think they would like to, but for, again, from my own experience, it's there's just... They don't get it, and and talking to the people, they they come from a whole different background. In engineering, they're not necessarily the thing about. At least, how do I say this? They come from a culture and a world where the goal was revenue, make it scale, and make as much friggin' yeah. money as possible, and be as monopolistic as you possibly yeah, can. Yeah, and 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 that that is a dangerous recipe, as far as I'm concerned, and one that I saw. Which led to the helped lead to the collapse in a lot of ways of quality journalism because it was never about the work for the people who controlled the purse strings. It was about you know as I said earlier profit. Yep. So those values I think have to shift and the the uh, ability to turn, to do public service. Let's call it public service journalism. That's what I call it. Uh, in a nonpartisan way is something they really have to understand. And I think there's an education process. I mean, I, I think the, the genie came out of the bottle and the people who created those companies had really no idea where it would go in terms mm. of the evil or the abuses that, that have we've seen. Uh, it was all like, wow, this is great. And I think there was a huge learning curve. And, I, you know, candidly, they were created by some really, really brilliant people who were young. And, and I've frequently said this. They were brilliant people who had no wisdom. Mm. Smart but not wise. Yeah. Yeah. And very little life experience. And I think that's what we're seeing going on here. Well, we're watching them grow up live now. Aren't yeah. We? yeah. And touch all our lives. <laughs> Indeed. Um, let's just return to the Woodward book as a, as a final moment. I, I was very interested in the Washington Post released the transcript of a phone call between Woodward. And the and, audio. You can uh, hear and it. And the audio uh, between Woodward and Trump. In which the president says he didn't know they'd been asked for the interview from Woodward and seems sort of resigned to another bad book about himself coming out. And at the end of that uh, that transcript, uh, Woodward ends the call by saying something which I found a little jarring, although, well, intrinsically American. He says to Trump, I quote, I believe in our country, and because you are our president, I wish you good luck. So I guess my question is, is there no limit to U.S. patriotism? I think there is a limit. I think it's just it's it's such a hot button subject politically. Uh, Do you think Trump is the limit? Well, I think for yes, I you know I think right now, as I said earlier, you know there are millions and millions of Americans who are angry, embarrassed, uh, and that's always been the case. I mean, it, it's not like sure. new. I, I mentioned when we started talking, you know, when I was a young guy. I mean, the Vietnam War, and yeah, the millions and millions of people in the streets, and the divide around that. Sure. And, and the violence. I mean, we had a group called the Weather Underground, who mm. were mainly white. They were blowing people up, or mm. trying to. And mm. the Black Panthers, I mean, again, this this volatile stew. Uh, and we've had this in the past. And I, I think that, but the cudgel of you're not patriotic or protecting the flag, this whole episode we're having, you know, about football players, yeah, American football players yeah. taking a knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just... Again, it's it's about the political divide, and so tell me if you were on the phone to Trump, oh. would you say, "I believe in our country, and because you're our president, I wish you good luck." Uh, I would say I favorite. believe in the the best American values, and I wish you would respect them. Yeah. 
And on that note, <laughs> Robert Rosenthal, I thank you so much for being on The Fourth Estate with me, Peter Frey, and my producer, Anthony Dockrell, tonight. Um, I'm going to put in a big plug for Reveal. It's a fantastic uh, resource, a, great, a fantastic news site, and a fantastic podcast every week. Yeah? Yeah, it's called revealnews.org if you want to hear it. Yeah, I, I'd strongly recommend it for anyone interested Thank you, Peter. In, in journalism um, and, and investigative journalism in particular. Yes, have a, uh, have a great rest of stay, um, and we'll see you in the U.S., and you know, all I can say is keep up the great work. Thank you for being on The Fourth Estate. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Australia. <laughs>